This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On May 17, 1938, people tuning into the radio heard something a bit different from the typical news of the day. It was the first time that a game show was aired, and it would go on to revolutionize the broadcast entertainment industry. The quiz show was called Information Please, and it aired on NBC radio stations for almost 13 years. Information Please, presented each week at this time by Canada Dry, famous the world over for its fine beverages. Wake up, America! Time to stump the experts! The concept of the show was basic. A panel of experts were given a list of questions provided by the audience. If the experts could not answer the question correctly, the listener who submitted the question won $5, almost $100 today. A listener would receive $2 if their question was used in the show. Over the years, the quiz show raised the amount of the prize money and included a set of encyclopedias to keep things interesting. Two weeks after the U.S. premiered the first radio game show, the United Kingdom became the first country to air a televised quiz show. At 10 p.m. on May 31, 1938, viewers were treated to a 15-minute showdown between celebrities and contestants in a program called Spelling Bee. While that show only lasted four episodes, its popularity demonstrated the category's potential. A year later, in April 1939, a show called Dr. IQ launched on both television and radio stations in the U.S. The program, which saw audience members win silver dollars if they correctly answered questions, was considered the first commercially successful quiz show. It was followed by shows like Truth or Consequences, which was the very first quiz show aired on broadcast television. Truth or Consequences premiered in July 1941 and gave players two seconds to try and answer absurd trivia questions. The high-speed, high-pressure question-and-answer format became a hit with audiences and laid the foundation for some of the most popular shows of all time. During the 1950s, as television was overtaking radio as the preferred means of entertainment, game shows began to dominate the airwaves. To capture ratings in the slower afternoon hours, networks offered lower-stakes games directly targeting housewives. Shows like The Price is Right, which first aired in 1956 and went on to be the longest-running daytime game show in history. Today, these four bargain hunters match their shopping skills. And the original Wheel of Fortune, which aired on the CBS network in 1952. Much like the modern version, the show invited contestants to spin an oversized wheel to win cash and prizes. For those primetime viewers, there were high-stakes games like the $64,000 Question, which premiered on CBS in 1955, and 21, which followed a year later on NBC. Both quiz shows were based on general knowledge questions, where players would earn money for correct answers. The primetime programming became extremely popular with audiences and advertisers alike, making the quiz show the most lucrative category on television. 
But as the ad revenue poured in and the ratings continued to skyrocket, the pressure was mounting for show executives to keep viewers interested. After all, it wasn't so much about the questions or the responses. It was about the drama. It was about the countdown, the valuable prizes to be won or lost. Even if you weren't a contestant, as an audience member, you could still internalize the pressure. That was the magic ingredient, and show producers knew it. They just had to make sure every episode was more dramatic than the last. But how do you guarantee drama to a fundamentally predictable formula? Well, if you were a quiz show executive in the 1950s, chances were you faked the whole thing. The practice of in-house cheating became so widespread that it almost destroyed the genre and would become known as the quiz show scandals. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. As the popularity of primetime quiz shows exploded in the late 1950s, so too did the creative ideas to attract viewers. From using celebrities as both hosts and guests to the spectacle of the returning champion, producers tried everything to keep the ratings moving upward. For high-speed quiz shows, the now ubiquitous thumb buzzer was introduced. Otherwise known as a lockout device, the buzzers ensured that only the quickest contestant would get the first guess. This, of course, added to the already high-pressure situation, resulting in even more on-air drama. Slower-paced game shows had their own tricks to ramp up theatrics. Giveaway shows, for example, like Stop the Music, which ran on ABC until 1956, invited random audience members to play for a chance to win. This seemingly simple tactic resulted in maximum audience participation, and was so effective at generating excitement, the model has been used ever since. While producers may have used different tactics to try and keep audiences on the edge of their seats, they could all agree on at least one thing. The bigger the prize, the greater the ratings. So, after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 1954 that game shows were not a type of illegal lottery or gambling, as argued by the FCC, show producers went all out. One of the first primetime shows to come after the landmark ruling was CBS's The $64,000 Question. The greatest name in cosmetics presents the 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64. Yes, the $64,000 question. It premiered in 1955 and was by far the most prize money offered by a quiz show at the time. The sizable jackpot helped catapult the show to the top of the charts. It was so popular that it quickly knocked the number one rated television show out of its spot. That show... I Love Lucy. To win, a contestant would have to correctly answer a series of increasingly challenging questions on a specific subject. Each question came with an increasing cash prize, until the player reached the final one worth $64,000. Because of the show's popularity and the vast amount of money people could earn, winners would often become national celebrities. 
One of them was a young psychologist named Dr. Joyce Brothers. She became the first woman, and only the second person, to win the show's top prize, walking away with almost $135,000. That's about one and a quarter million dollars today. The brilliant doctor had not only become one of the biggest winners in quiz show history, but the publicity rocketed Joyce Brothers into fame. Please welcome America's favorite shrink, Dr. Joyce Brothers. Before her death in 2013, the creator of Pop Psychology wrote an advice column for hundreds of newspapers around the world, hosted numerous syndicated radio and television shows, and appeared on more talk shows than can be counted. Yet, while the show helped launch her career, she would later reveal that, behind the scenes, producers were behaving less than ethically. It was discovered that show execs did not want Joyce Brothers to win, and did everything they could to help her lose. Trying to knock her out at the $16,000 question, the host asked her something which was so trivial, it was unlikely that anyone would know the answer. Anyone but Dr. Joyce Brothers, that is. The question was on the subject of boxing, and thanks to her photographic memory and her husband's love of the sport, she went on to correctly answer everything they threw at her. You hear me and see me, Joyce? Yes, I can. Ready for your $16,000 question. Oh, okay, may I have it, please? Thank you. All right. For $16,000, I will ask the question, then I'll repeat it once, Joyce, and take the full 30 seconds to answer. I'll ask you to name these four famous referees. First, what referee holds the record for the greatest number of heavyweight championship fights? Next, who was the referee in the hotly debated but completely legitimate Dempsey-Tunney long count battle in Chicago? Then, what heavyweight champion decided to retire, named the two leading contenders for the title, then refereed the match? And finally... What man, later famous in the boxing world, refereed the comeback attempt of an ex-champ against Jack Johnson at Reno, Nevada? You have 30 seconds for your answer. Good luck, Joyce. No one could believe that the 28-year-old mother of one could possibly know that much about boxing. Skeptics began asking questions about how much a show's outcome is controlled. While there was ultimately no scrutiny placed on Joyce Brothers, it was clear something was going on to manipulate what was supposed to be a fair competition. That suspicion was validated in spectacular fashion a couple of years later, starting with another highly popular quiz show called 21. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Let's meet our first two players as Geritol, America's number one tonic, presents 21. When the first episode aired on NBC in September 1956, it was described by one of the co-producers as a dismal failure. It wasn't just his opinion, either. The show's sponsor agreed and threatened to pull funding if they saw the same performance next time. 
The issue, it seemed, wasn't the questions or the show's overall format, it was with the contestants. Executives were not entertained when the two players gave random answers to questions they didn't know. So, according to the co-producer, every show after that was completely rigged. That's exactly what a former contestant tried to tell a New York journalist after his appearance on the show. His name was Herb Stemple, and he would become one of the first whistleblowers to come forward. His story would eventually be immortalized in the 1994 Robert Redford movie, Quiz Show. Good evening, I'm Jack Barry. Tonight here on 21, Herbert Stemple, our 29-year-old GI college student, can win $111,500, the highest amount of money ever to be won on television. Herb Stemple appeared on 21 just three months after the less-than-favorable premiere. By then, show producers had figured out the new match-fixed model for the show, and Stemple was going to be their first manufactured champion. Before going on the show, one of the producers, Dan Enright, stopped by his apartment with an offer. He would receive $25,000 to follow what was described to him as a kind of Hollywood script. Stemple would essentially be playing a character. The show not only gave him the questions and answers ahead of time, but they also coached him on how to deliver his lines. He was given directions like what gestures to make and what facial expressions to use. Producers had a vision in mind for his appearance as well. They gave him a military-style haircut and dressed him in a suit a bit too small to fit comfortably. An old collared shirt with worn edges and an ugly tie rounded out the look. The whole idea was to get the audience to react to the contestants. If they did that, they were more invested in the outcome and more likely to keep watching. Interestingly, it didn't matter to producers if viewers supported a contestant or wanted them to lose. As Herb Stemple put it during an interview later on, the reason I had been asked to put on this old, ill-fitting suit and get this marine-type haircut was to make me appear as what you would call today a nerd, a square. Show executives were banking on the audience rooting against him. The more he won, the more they hoped people would tune in to watch the know-it-all lose. And tune in, they did. Tens of millions of people were watching when the 29-year-old appeared on 21 for the sixth consecutive week as the game show's reigning champion. Thanks to having all the answers provided in advance, Stemple was unbeatable. But while the plan worked perfectly at the start, the audience was growing tired and the ratings began to slip. In an effort to reignite viewership, producers decided it was time for a change. They brought in a contestant named Charles Van Doren, an English professor and the son of a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet. The handsome and charismatic academic was the polar opposite of the show's returning champion, and, as far as producers were concerned, he was their new champion. Appealing to his ego, producers told Van Doren that his participation in the fraud would go a long way to, as they put it, glamorize intellectualism. That, and the promise of money and fame, was enough to seal the deal. Charles Van Dorn made his debut on 21 on November 28, 1956, and, as producers hoped, was an instant hit with viewers. Although he was never told directly, Stemple knew his opponent was in on the fix after their first three games resulted in ties. 
It wasn't until just before the show went live a couple of weeks later that producer Dan Enright told Stemple he would be losing to Van Doren that night. So, on the evening of December 5, 1956, when the last question was asked, Herb Stemple took the fall as asked. Herb Stemple, you have 16 points. The category is movies and movie stars. How many points do you want to try for from 1 to 11? I'll try 5. Which would give you 21 points if you get this right and you will be the winner again. Because this is a critical moment, if you need some extra time, you can have it. You ask, let me make it sure again, you ask for five points. All right. What motion picture won the Academy Award for 1955? You need some extra time to think about it? Uh, I sure do. I'll tell you when your time is up. up Herb Stemple for five points, which would give you 21. What motion picture won the Academy Award for 1955? I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. You really want to take a guess at it? If not, I'll have to call it wrong, Herb. On the waterfront? No, I'm sorry. The answer is Marty. Marty. You lose five points, it puts you back down to 11. He would later state that he knew the answer which made it all the more disappointing. True to their word, 31-year-old Charles Van Doren became the quiz show's new champion. He held that title for an astonishing 16 weeks, winning close to $1.2 million in today's value. Not only had he made a ton of money for his part in the fraud, but he had also become one of the most popular celebrities of the time. For several years following his epic run on the quiz show, the charismatic teacher was a fixture on television and radio shows across the U.S. He was even featured on the cover of Time magazine. But while Van Doren was enjoying the spotlight, Herb Stemple was in the background speaking to journalists about his experience. Without evidence, though, newspapers were reluctant to go to print with the story. Just over a year later, something happened that would change their minds. In 1958, as a standby contestant on the show Dotto was waiting backstage, he picked up a notebook that had the name of the returning player on the cover, Marie Wynn. While she was on stage in front of the cameras, he decided to take a quick look. Inside the notebook, he found the very quiz questions being asked on the stage in front of him. After approaching the papers with the proof they needed to go ahead with the allegations, the evidence was forwarded to the New York District Attorney's Office. As the investigation ramped up, more contestants came forward with stories of being coached prior to appearing on game shows. Shows like Tic-Tac-Toe, For Love or Money, and The Big Surprise, along with 21 and Dotto, were all implicated for fraud. Each one was subsequently cancelled, but the scandal was far from over and almost destroyed the game show category entirely. A look around the world at other top stories of 1959. 
Scandal of the Year, the television quiz show fraud with Charles Van Doren, the pivotal figure. When the scandal broke, five of the top-rated programs on network television were game shows. The appeal for most viewers was the fundamental idea that anyone could become rich and famous if they were a contestant. That illusion was shattered, as so many popular shows were exposed as fixed. For a country in love with its quiz shows, the truth was heartbreaking. President Eisenhower even gave his opinion on the matter, stating that it was a terrible thing to do to the American public. Many journalists at the time wrote that it was a clear end to the nation's moral fiber. Needless to say, the deception was taken seriously. While there were no laws at the time against rigging a quiz show, there were laws against lying to a grand jury. Yet, of the 150 former contestants and producers called as witnesses, it's believed that nearly 100 of them lied under oath. Eventually, 18 witnesses admitted to perjury, but none received jail time. The vast majority, however, evidently feared the social ramifications of admitting their part in the fraud, behavior that caught the attention of the federal government. In October 1959, the U.S. Congress opened their own investigation into the quiz show scandal. Coincidentally, at the same time the House Oversight Committee announced that they were looking into the matter, several other popular high-stakes quiz shows were immediately canceled. Name That Tune, The Big Payoff, and Top Dollar were just a few to disappear from the networks seemingly overnight. As the congressional investigation continued, Witnesses who had denied everything during the New York probe were now telling very different stories. But it was one witness in particular that provided the irrefutable proof Congress was looking for. Back for the fifth week, Mr. James Snodgrass, and returning with $52,500, Mr. Hank Bloomgarden. When James Snodgrass was a contestant on 21, like many others before him, he too was coached by producers. Wanting to document the evidence, Snodgrass sent himself the answers via registered mail prior to the show being aired. It was more than enough to draw a reasonable conclusion. With the facade now completely eroded by the facts, it was time for Charles Van Doren, who had remained out of the spotlight for most of the scandal, to appear in front of Congress. Until then, Van Doren had vehemently denied any knowledge of fraud. That was now over. In the Senate hearing room, the dramatic climax of the probe of fixed and rigged quiz shows. Charles Van Doren's wife and father, poet Mark Van Doren, are in the audience as committee chairman Senator Orrin Harris opens the hearing. Charles Van Doren arrives to apologize and attempt to explain to the millions whose friendship and respect he had won. Van Doren retracts his earlier denials of getting any assistance. He admits that he received dramatic coaching and the questions and many of the answers. But his statement is a rueful and moving realization that for his wealth and fame, he paid a bitterly high price. The congressional hearings of the late 1950s resulted in tighter regulations and stricter consequences. An amendment to the Communications Act of 1934 specifically prohibits any match-fixing practices within the game show industry. As a result, most of the major networks completely removed their quiz show programming. 
Those that did continue made changes, such as implementing caps on how much a contestant could win and how many times they could return. It would be close to 30 years before producers returned to the high-stakes, high-pressure model. The quiz show scandals of the 1950s may have been a low point for the industry, but without it, the most popular game show of all time may never have been created. A few years after the congressional hearings wrapped up, acclaimed producer Merv Griffin mentioned to his wife that he believed the quiz show was dead. He thought the public would remain skeptical that guests were not provided the answers ahead of time. Thinking about it for a moment, his wife responded that the solution was obvious. Give everyone the answers. A bit confused, he asked for clarification, to which she replied, have the contestants ask the questions. If it's the right question, they win money. If not, she explained, they'll be in jeopardy of losing money. In March 1964, NBC aired the first episode of Jeopardy. What followed was a resurgence of the much-loved programming, with shows like Wheel of Fortune, The Joker's Wild, and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. With updated regulations in place since the end of the 1950s, cheating on game shows doesn't happen very often. But there have been a few cases. As if learning nothing from history, in 2010, the Fox Network was all set to premiere a quiz show called Our Little Genius. The program would feature child prodigies answering expert-level questions to win cash prizes. But before the first episode was even released, the show was cancelled. It seemed producers thought taking a page from the 1950s playbook would work out well six decades later. Some of the contestants and their parents were given coaching and specific answers prior to going on stage. Complaints were filed with the Federal Communications Commission by some of the parents. The case would have been the first time since the late 1950s that the FCC investigated fraud allegations concerning a quiz show. An investigation, however, was never conducted since the show was canceled before a single episode made it to air. Another game show-related story that made international headlines occurred in 2001 on the British version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? When former British Army Major Charles Ingram took the hot seat, no one expected him to win the jackpot of a million pounds. After a rough start where he used up both lifelines, Ingram returned the next day and cleaned house. His flawless performance caused some to question its legitimacy, and the production company started an internal investigation. Before he could receive the lucrative jackpot, the company froze the payout until the review was completed. It was while they were studying the footage that someone noticed the coughing. As Charles Ingram debated each possible answer out loud, coughing can be heard from not one, but two people consistently. Who was the second husband of Jacqueline Kennedy? I would have thought... I would have thought that it would be Aristotle Anassis. I'm, I'm pretty confident it's Aristotle Anassis. Gentlemen versus players was an annual match between amateurs and professionals of which sport? I think it's cricket, uh, but I'm not sure. But the reason I think it's cricket is because I'm sure I've seen a print take cricket. One of the people was an audience member who, as it turned out, was Ingram's wife. The other cough was coming from a contestant waiting just off stage. 
It was clear that the coughing was timed in connection with the right answers. Unlike the cases in the 1950s, all three were charged with fraud, and after a four-week trial, all three were convicted. They were sentenced to jail time and ordered to pay hefty fines. The production company was not implicated of any wrongdoing in the case. Another instance of a contestant making headlines for trying to play the players happened in Spain in 2014. Appearing on the popular Spanish game show, Pasa Palabra, celebrity contestant Adriana Abena did something so obvious it was difficult to take seriously. In one of the challenges, the model and presenter was asked to identify several songs. Unfortunately, music was not a category where she had a ton of knowledge. Not a problem, though. Abena simply tucked an iPhone between her legs and let the music-identifying app, Shazam, give her the correct answers. When the host noticed what was going on and confronted her, she admitted to cheating and apologized. Audience members, who were watching everything unfold in real time, found the incident highly entertaining reportedly calling it one of the best episodes of the show. So for the jackpot, name your favorite game shows. You have 10 seconds. Good luck. Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by me. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. And a huge thanks for your amazing reviews and ratings. I'll be back next week with another episode.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.